And you'll see why I say this, but in the will of the Lord, we will close with that song. <laughs> All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning, and uh, we left off last week finishing uh, verse 4, and we're going to begin with verse 5 this morning. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits." But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So you look at a passage like this and you say, what is in it for me? What can I get from this passage? And so as I thought about it, I thought of a phrase, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Have you ever asked anybody that question? What's on your mind? If you have ever seen someone who is deep in thought and may have a troubled look on their face, it's probably because they have something on their mind. Or it could be that a person is deep in thought but that person has a smile on her face, and she has someone on her mind. Could be a guy, too, having someone on his mind. So I guess to get the question this morning, as we think about this passage, what's on your mind? If you're tech savvy and you use the app Facebook, every time you go online, that's the screen that you see, something like that. And it says update status, what's on your mind? Facebook wants to know what you're thinking, what's going on up there? And uh, it asks you that question, what's on your mind? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 5 through 12, Paul reveals what's on his mind. And knowing what's on his mind should actually instruct us in the kinds of things that we should be thinking about ourselves. And as someone who has, was serving the Lord, he had people on his mind and he had ministry on his mind, ministry opportunities. So this morning we want to know what Paul thought about serving the Lord with other believers. And as a servant of the Lord, if you're a believer this morning, you are a servant of the Lord. What's on your mind? What was on Paul's mind? If Paul had a Facebook account, he would fill it with information about what was on his mind. But first of all, let's just say he went there today. The first thing he might have said in answer to that question, what's on your mind? 
the Corinthians. And so in verse 5, he says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. This is interesting. Um, Paul had told them that he was coming back to see them. He had let them know that. And there were some within Corinth who were um, against Paul. And they were saying, yeah, where is he? He says he's coming. Where is he? Not a man of his word, is he? Where is he? And uh, you'll see that this actually comes up again in 2 Corinthians. So I won't steal the thunder of whoever's going to take that passage. As he thought of the Corinthians, what was on his mind? Well, first of all, if you go back, if you have a Bible, open up, and we're going to kind of do a quick survey of, of what we've already looked at in, in the book, 1 Corinthians, and just highlight a couple of things. The first thing I see is in chapter 1, verse 4, he was thankful to God for them. So as he thought about the Corinthians, this is what he said, I thank my God always concerning you. In verse 4b, one of the things that uh, we see over and over again is that he emphasized the fact that they were believers. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They had a bag full of problems. I mean, this whole book has been about the problems at Corinth. But in spite of all of the problems, all of the difficulties, all of the sin, all of the issues, he still valued them as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how he looked at the Corinthians. And so in verse 4b, it says that they received the grace of God. Well, who has received the grace of God? All mankind has, but the Corinthians believed it, or they received the grace of God. Verse 5, he talks about them being enriched with spiritual gifts. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, their salvation in Christ was accompanied by the outpouring of the Spirit of God and um, of spiritual gifts. They had them in abundance. In verse 8, though they had many, many problems, Paul assured them that they would be found blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, the Corinthians will be there. They are believers in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2, they had come to know the Lord and they were growing as a result of Paul's ministry to them. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God considered them his field. He considered them his building. And later in verse 10, it says that they were the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelled, dwelt in them. Clear teaching from this book that the Corinthians were truly saved. And if those statements aren't clear enough, Paul said to them, you are Christ's, and Christ is God. So you belong to Christ. Paul also in chapter 4 um, and chapter 11 refers to himself as their spiritual father and that they were his spiritual children. As a result, he felt quite at liberty to rebuke them, to correct them, to teach them, and to encourage them. In chapter 6, verse 11, Paul remembered and, and told them, look, here's a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you are now, he said, um, washed, you are sanctified, you are justified before God. So clearly, as Paul thought of the Corinthian church, 
He thought of the people there as his brothers and sisters in Christ, those who were saved and on their way to heaven and would be perfected um, at, at some point in the future. He wanted to visit them. Uh, this comes out in this uh, verse 5. And why did he want to visit them? Well, he loved them. It was very clear. He loved them. And he wanted to encourage them and to build them up. So he told them early in the book, I am coming. But then later he says, how do you want me to come? If you continue on the course of action that you're taking now, he says, I'm going to have to come to you with a rod. But if you're corrected by what I say in this letter, I will come in love in a spirit of gentleness. It's up to you. How do you want me to come? And so he gave that option to them. What was on Paul's mind? The Corinthians. Why? Well, because they were causing him deep, deep concern because of the activities in their life, the things that they were doing, the things that they were saying, the things that they were believing. They were on his mind. And so he was also concerned about how they would respond when they received this letter. So he was going to, after he finished this letter, he was going to send it through Timothy and other believers to them. And he was deeply concerned at how they might receive this letter, how they might respond to this letter. And so they were on his mind about that as well. No doubt he hoped that they would respond well. And that when he returned, he could encourage them. So what's the lesson for us? As you think about the other brothers and sisters here at Calvary, what's on your mind? How do you view each other? How do you view one another? Do you see each individual as Paul viewed the Corinthians? Each one is a spirit-filled, gifted, washed, sanctified, justified, glorified believer. Is that how you view each one? That each one of the believers here is seen as the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God is dwelling in us? Do you see each one as a dear child of God? Do you see your place in Calvary where you can minister to one another and faithfully serve each other? How do you view each other? What's on your mind as you think of Calvary Bible Chapel? What's on Paul's mind? Well, verse 6 and 7, his future plans. And really, I might say it this way, his future ministry plans. Uh, verse 6, it says, And it may be that I will remain, or even winter, or, or, sorry, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. It's an interesting verse, a couple of verses. It shows us that Paul has plans, plans for the future. What are your plans for the future? As you think about your life, as you think about tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, the future, what are your plans for the future? Does it include ministry to the Lord or for the Lord? Paul's future ministry plans are laid out for us. He was actually at this time in Ephesus, he was serving the Lord there. There was a great ministry going on in that uh, area, and he was doing a great work there. The blessing of God was obviously upon him, but he had promised to come to the uh, church at Corinth again. And so Paul's plan 
was to visit them or remain with them or winter with them or stay with them a while. You say, well, that's not a very definitive plan. Well, the plan was solid enough. The plan was to visit them. It was the length of stay that was still undetermined. So it's good to think about your future. It's good to think about the plans that you have uh, for your life, the things that you'd like to do, the places you'd like to go, the people that you would like to see. But what are your plans for ministry in your life? What plans do you have for ministry? What plans do you have for serving others? Paul had future plans about serving others. But with all plans, big or small, he knew that he could not boast about what he was going to do. He could not say with definite certainty, I will be there on such and such a date. For you see, Paul understood that God is sovereign and that God can change our plans in a moment's notice. And if he wants to change our plans, he will. And we are subject to him. And he was quite happy about that. Some of us chafe under that, uh, that idea. Some of us chafe under the idea that God somehow can redirect us or change what we want to do. After all, we made the plans. And there's nothing wrong with planning. The scripture actually encourages us to do so. And we should. But we also need to be open to the Lord's direction. And the Lord may drastically change our plans. But I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. When the Lord changes our plans, do not become bitter. Do not become angry. Do not become resentful or discouraged. Because the Lord always has better plans than we have. I will tell you that from experience, from life, and from seeing it so many times in the scripture and in the lives of other people. Do not become discouraged if he changes your plans. God is sovereign, which means he has the right to do whatever he pleases and whatever he pleases is right. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says this, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And so the Lord executes his plans in our life, and those plans are good. They may be quite different than what we expected, but when there is a change of plan, a change of direction, something that happens in our life that we weren't expecting, open your eyes to see what it is that the Lord is trying to teach you or to show you or what opportunities he might be giving you that you did not have before. Don't be discouraged if you, if you face unexpected challenges or if your dreams seem dashed or you have unfulfilled expectations. God's plans are better and his purposes are greater. God's plans are for peace and not evil. He plans to give you a future and a hope. So in the book of Proverbs, we read a couple of verses that I'll share with you. Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says this, A man's heart plans his way. Nothing wrong with that. But the Lord directs his steps. So you may have clear plan, but the Lord may give you steps going in a very different direction. In James chapter 4, 13 through 16, it says this, Come now, you who say, 
Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 4, verse 19, it says, Paul says, But I will come to you shortly. That's a plan. Then he says, If the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Then in verse uh, 7 of chapter 16, he says, But I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. And so it's important in all of our planning, no matter what it is, life planning, weekly planning, daily planning, moment by moment, plan, whatever it is, career planning, school planning, that we surrender our will to the Lord's will. He may have a change in schooling. He may have a change in living arrangements. He may have a change in career, a change in health a change in where we live, how we live, and where we die. Be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. As long as you are in the center of God's will, you will be exactly where he wants you to be. And so it, that brings me to the subject of knowing God's will. This is sort of like a, an add-on to the sermon, okay? Knowing God's will. How do we know the will of God for our lives? There are some very simple um, items that we should think about. How does the Lord direct our steps? I think the very first thing, the first way, is right here. He directs us through the Word of God. There are many, many commands in the Scripture that, uh, and principles that are obvious, and we should meditate on the Word of God. We should uh, be directed by it. I mean, there's some very simple things, such as, do not be unequally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a very clear command of Scripture. If an opportunity comes to enter into a business agreement with an unbeliever and to be partners with them as a Christian, you say no. How do you know that's the will of God? Because he says so. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Um, believers should remain morally pure. There's a lot of principles and a lot of direct commands from Scripture that should not confuse us and should help us make sound decisions in life. Second thing to think about is to put God's interests first. The Bible says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God will give you direction if you seek him first. You're, you're seeking what he wants you to do, where he wants you to go, how he wants you to minister. He will give you direction. The third, and this is usually the one we place on top, is circumstances. Sometimes circumstances that are beyond our control. Paul had many ministry opportunities and, many, and a desire to serve in many ways. But several times he was put in prison. His plans stopped immediately. I think about Joseph. It was never Joseph's, in Joseph's mind or in his plans to end up where he ended up. He went to see where his brothers were, how they were doing. He never expected in that plan that day that he would end up in a pit by his brothers, 
that he would be sold into slavery, be taken to Potiphar's house, to be uh, um, tempted beyond measure, have to run away, never thought he would be arrested, put in prison, uh, forgotten in prison, and then eventually raised to second in command of all of Egypt. That was never in his mind. Those plans weren't there. He did not wake up one morning and go, you know what? I think I'd be a second, I'd like to be second commander in Egypt. Never happened. But God had a plan, and it was very different, and the way to the fulfillment of that plan was certainly not, would not have been on Joseph's uh, top ten list. But it was what God had in store for him. So don't resist God's plan. Maybe he'll make you second in command of all of Canada or something like that. Fourth, through godly counsel, and I'm going to say it this way, through godly counsel that we follow. Okay, a lot of people seek counsel. Um, God has placed elders over you, and we're responsible for your souls. One day, I'm going to have to give an account of your souls before the Lord. And so I'd like to be able to do that with joy. First of all, there are very few people who seek counsel. That's one thing. But secondly, when they do, they often don't follow counsel. And I think, why would you even ask if you had no intention of following it? But God has given you a safeguard to you, and it, you would be wise to take advantage of that. Fifth, knowing God's will. Many times it's through Christian friends and Christian family members who know us well. They see us going in a direction. They safeguard us. They uh, protect us from making misjudgments. Number six, through prayer. The Bible says, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Part of the problem with seeking God's will, I have found as I've ministered over the years, and even in my own life I see this, that very often we have made a decision of what we think God's will is for our life. And that is stuck in our minds. Generally speaking, the, the, um, the plan is our own concoction. It's something that we decided that we want to do regardless of what God wants us to do. And then we come to the Lord and we pray. And we say, Lord, please give me direction. And what we're really asking is, Lord, please rubber stamp what I just thought about. I want to do this, so please could you just stamp this for me and let me get on my way. Approve my plans. And sometimes we even manipulate circumstances or misread the Bible to prove that God wants us to do something. You see here, here's a verse that says, and you go, that's not the context of that verse at all. And there's no way that verse fits with your plans. But if we are really trusting in God to give you an indication of his will, he may say yes, and you don't have to manipulate circumstances. He, has, he is quite capable of opening up opportunities for you to serve or to minister or to say no to you. Wow, you mean God will say no to my plans? Yeah, sometimes he does. If we trust God, he may say no. And one who trusts in God must learn to accept what appears to be a negative response from the Lord. Sometimes the Lord says no. Paul prayed about his sickness three times and the Lord said no. And so Paul learned something from that, that God's grace was sufficient and that God could work in Paul's weakness to glorify himself and that God's power was demonstrated more effectively through Paul's weakness. Sometimes God says no. 
Finally, knowing the will of God through the peace of God. It says, let the peace of God rule or umpire in your hearts. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There are times when everything else seems to line up about a particular direction or, or course of action in your life, and the one element that's missing is the peace of God. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully for the peace of God as well. Sense what the Lord is doing or saying in you. We all want God to say yes to every prayer that we ask. And most often when we share stories about God at work in our lives, it's the yes stories. It's the stories of how I prayed and the Lord answered my prayer in a marvelous way. And it was yes, exactly the way I had prayed. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't God good? And he is. I rarely hear people talk about uh, how wonderful God is and how good God is when he says no. But he's just as wonderful. He's just as great. He's just as good when he says no. The question is, how ready are you, how ready am I to accept God saying no to us? When you pray, I know you want to hear him say yes. But if his answer is no, are you willing to accept it and do his will? Are you willing to say, Lord, I want your will above my will, no matter what? I want to illustrate this with a true story. Some of you may have heard this before. But it is a striking example of God's will being better than ours. Choir practice was always Wednesday night at 7.20 p.m. at the Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. And the choir leader of this church was a real stickler for people being there on time. She was always there on time, and everybody else had to be there on time. According to her... Everyone must be there on time. But on March 1st, 1950, the Lord said no to her plans and no to 15 choir members who were part of that choir. And every single person, including the choir director, were late. The choir director and the choir had plans, but the Lord said no. And everyone had a different reason, but everyone was late. Earlier that day, the pastor of the church, Roger Klempel, noticed that the church building was cold. It was a cool day, and so he went over to the church a little bit early, turned on the heater so that the church building would be warm, and then he went off home for dinner. At 7.10, when it was time for him to go back to the church with his wife and daughter, Marilyn Ruth, it turned out that Marilyn Ruth's dress was soiled. And so she had to take it off, put on another dress, but it was crumpled or crinkled or whatever, and her mother had to iron it, and so that delayed them, and they were late. LaDonna Vandergrift was a high school sophomore and was having trouble with a geometry problem. She knew practice began promptly, and she always came early, but this problem vexed her, and she wanted to get this problem solved and her homework finished before going to choir practice. And it just didn't come to her quickly, and so she was late. Royanna Estes was ready, but her car wouldn't start. So she and her sister Sadie called LaDonna, that's the sophomore who was having trouble with the geometry problem, and said, would you pick us up? 
but because she was having trouble with her geometry problem, she didn't get there on time, and so all three of them were late. Mrs. Leonard Schuster was ordinarily there at 7.20 with her small daughter, Susan. But on this particular evening, Mrs. Schuster had to go back to her mother's house to help her get ready for a missionary meeting. So she was late. Herbert Kipp had, to put, had put off writing a very important letter. And um, as he wrote the letter, the words just didn't flow. They just didn't flow off his pen. And, and so he was struggling with writing this letter. And finally, when he finished and uh, was ready to uh, put it in, a, in an envelope, he realized he too was late. The person who lived the closest was across the street from the church. Her name was Joyce Black. And the evening was cold, and since the evening was cold, she said, I, was, I, I didn't want to go out into the cold, and besides that, I was just plain lazy. <laughs> and so I didn't get across the street in time. Because his wife was away, Harvey Ale was taking care of his two boys. So he was going to bring them to practice with them. But at supper time, they got into this conversation with each other, and by the time he looked at his watch, they were late. Marilyn Paul, the pianist, had planned to arrive half an hour early. However, after dinner, she fell asleep. And when her mother awakened her at 7.15, it was, she only had time to tidy up, get ready, and get out the door, but they were late too. And by the way, Marilyn Paul was the daughter of the choir leader, and so the choir leader, her mother, Mrs. F.E. Paul, um, was late because she couldn't awaken her daughter in time. She had tried, but she was in a deep sleep, and so she was late because of her daughter. High school girls, Lucille Jones and Dorothy Wood, were neighbors, and they would always go to practice together, but that night, Lucille was listening to a radio program, and, and it was so interesting that she couldn't pull herself away from the ending of the program, and the program ended at 7.30, not 7.20. And as a result, she was late, and since Dorothy always went with her, she waited for her, and she also was late for choir practice. Every one of these people had plans, all 15 of them. And for one reason or another, they were late. And because they were late, not a single one of them was there five minutes after choir practice had been scheduled to begin, and none of them were there the moment the church exploded into a ball of flames. So severe was the blast that all four walls of the church were blown out, and the heavy roof fell straight down on top of where the choir would have been practicing. And it would have crushed the entire choir had they not been late. The blast was so severe it shattered windows and surrounding houses and the shock wave forced a, near, a nearby radio station off the air. We make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. The choir planned to meet at 720 and the Lord said no to every single one of the choir members. And everyone had a different excuse but it was without question that God overruled all of their plans. Clearly, this was divine intervention. And so we must say with all sincerity when we make our plans, if it is the Lord's will. That's not just a phrase to add on to make you look spiritual. We should really mean that. If it is the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. And that's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. I want to be with you. I want to stay. I may want to winter with you. I may want to stay there a longer time if it is the Lord's will, if the Lord permits. What was on Paul's mind? Um, 
current ministry opportunities. He says in verse 8, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul, as he was writing this, was thinking about current opportunities that were before him. He longed to be with them, but at the same time, there was this amazing wide open door of service and ministry opportunities that he didn't want to neglect. Opportunities for the gospel, opportunities for teaching, and he wanted to go through that open door that God clearly had opened for him. You know, Paul was like a farmer in a way. A, a farmer spreads out seeds on the, on the soil and he waters and he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits and finally the harvest comes in and then he seizes a very short window of opportunity to bring that harvest in. And that's what Paul was looking at here. He had served the Lord in this area for quite some time. And now an opportunity uh, had arisen for the, for the gospel and for service and for uh, teaching. And he says, I can't step away from this harvest. I've got to be here for that. And Paul was productive like that. He was like the ant in Proverbs. He was busy all the time gathering the spiritual harvest while it was ripe. Paul was far from being a sluggard in any way. Listen to what the proverb says. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. The lazy man in Proverbs is the worker who has every excuse in the book for why not to go out and plant, why not to go out and water, uh, not to do anything in preparation for the harvest. He's the worker who says, I want to be fruitful in God's service, and then does nothing. I want to have a great ministry. That's my plan, to, be, to, to have a great ministry for the Lord, and yet does nothing. You can't do God's will, uh, God's work, and... and um, make an excuse like that. You know, he's a guy that would say, well, I would go and serve the Lord today, but there's a lion in the street. That's what the sluggard would do. It's silly. And when the harvest is ripe and he should be reaping, he has no harvest. Paul saw the door, open door, as a harvest, and he worked hard for the opportunity, and it was now open to him. He was going to seize the day. Um, I don't have time to look at it, but if you take a look at it later, I think it's in Acts chapter 19, uh, he, he describes the open door and the service that was available to him. But with the open door of ministry also came tremendous opposition, and that always happens. When God's doing a work, Satan is right behind trying to undo the work, and that was happening here in Ephesus as well. Uh, Paul stood up to idolaters of the cult to Diana. He cast out evil spirits. He fought against false teaching. When great blessing comes, great opposition comes too. But Paul was not a quitter. Paul was not a sluggard. And this is what Paul was thinking. He said this to the Corinthians. God has opened a door for me. It's a, it's a great open door. I'm going to take it. What's on Paul's mind? Well, next, his fellow workers. Verse 10 says, Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. 
Now concerning our, our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So as I mentioned earlier, Paul sent this letter to, of Corinthians to the Corinthians by the hand of um, Timothy and others. Uh, Paul sent Timothy to Corinth, and so Timothy was on his mind. Timothy was on his mind. I think Timothy was on Paul's mind quite a bit when you read the scripture and you see the things that he says about him. He was concerned about Timothy because he was timid. He was concerned about Timothy because he had stomach issues. He was concerned about Timothy because he was a young believer. He was concerned about Timothy because he was his son in the faith. And he was now concerned about how the Corinthians would treat Timothy because if they were ignoring Paul and questioning Paul's authority, what chance did Timothy have in the midst of the Corinthians? How would they treat him? And so he urges the brethren at Corinth to give no cause of fear to Timothy. Timothy was also on Paul's mind because he recognized that God was at work in Timothy's life. He says here um, that he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. When you look at brothers and sisters in Christ, and you see them at work in the gospel or in teaching or, or whatever, do you look at them with spiritual pride? And I mean that in the best sense of the word. I know you shouldn't use pride in, in anything. But what I mean is, do you look over at them and say, wow, that really does my heart good to see that sister so effective in the ministry that God has given her to do, or that brother that he is taking every opportunity to share the gospel in every way he can. It really does my heart good. That's what Paul was saying here about Timothy. He's doing the work of the Lord, just like I am. And we ought to recognize those who are doing the work of the Lord and not despise them, but encourage them. You know, it's another interesting thing here, too, is that Paul entrusted Timothy with the responsibility of taking this letter, which was for the benefit of the whole church, uh, to them. It, it's a level of trust that he would be a faithful servant, a faithful doer of what Paul had asked him to do. Uh, the Proverbs also talks about this, relying on an unfaithful man is like you know, vinegar on the teeth or a broken foot, a foot out of its socket. You know, how do you rely on something like that? Well, Timothy was not like that. Timothy was a very reliable worker, one who was respected and honored uh, by Paul for doing the work of the Lord. Another person on Paul's mind was Apollos. Perhaps because Paul recognized that Timothy was timid, uh, he was a fearful type of a guy. He was apparently not a type A personality. Let's just put it that way. Um, but Apollos may have been a stronger leader. Maybe he was more bold. Maybe he was not afraid to stand up to the Corinthian believers and provide needed correction. Whatever the reason, Paul urged Apollos to go. Apollos, I really want you to go on this trip and to be with them and to go to the Corinthians. And Paulus was just, Apollos was just as determined that he would stay. And so Paul did not argue with Apollos. This did not become a battle between them. This did not become a source of conflict. Rather, Paul looked at Apollos and recognized that God was dealing with Apollos independently of Paul. Paul could counsel him, he could give him encouragement, but he recognized that each person 
has to be directed independently, specifically, or personally by the Lord. And so Paul recognized that when Apollos said, no, I will not go at this time. Apollos saw the same thing Paul saw. He was in um, Ephesus at the time. He saw the great open door of opportunity, and he wanted to stay and to be part of that work. And so he refused to go at that time. And so it really shows an admirable attribute in Paul. Even though he had a great love for the Corinthians and urged Apollos to go, he would never override another servant's direct leading from the Lord. So this morning we've seen what's on Paul's mind. And it's more than any Facebook page could handle, I'll tell you that. You know, you see, when you go to Facebook, and Facebook asks you that question every time you log in, they're asking you about yourself. Are you on your own mind? Okay, what's on your mind? And most people, when they do Facebook posts, it's all about them. You know, guilty as charged, right? And uh, it's, it's me, me, me. What's on your mind? I am. <laughs> You'll notice that as we went through this section that Paul was not thinking about himself. He was thinking about the Corinthians. He was thinking about fellow workers. And he was thinking about ministry opportunities that God could give him in Corinth and was giving him in Ephesus at the time. And so we want to end this morning by asking you the question, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Maybe it's time to update your status. Are you thinking of other Christians, especially those here at Calvary? Are you thinking of your future plans, what the Lord would have in store for you? Are you looking for ministry opportunities? Are you thinking how to encourage fellow workers? Tell me, this morning, what's on your mind? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we ask that we might have the mind of Christ, that we might uh, humbly serve and seek your will, Lord, in our lives. We pray, Lord, that our plans, uh, the things that we think about, the things that we plan for, the goals that we have for our life and our future, that we might here and now simply place them on the altar before you and say, Lord, whatever your will is, that's what we want for our lives. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us clear direction for the days ahead. Give us clear direction for the ministry opportunities that you have for us. And give us clear direction, Lord, on how we might best serve uh, other believers here and other believers abroad, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.